everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Millsoff, features editor at Billboard and Broadway fan-in-chief here. I hope that over the past few weeks, you've been tuning in to the best of Billboard on Broadway podcast episodes that I have posted as I gear up for the spring theater season. I've uh, been happy to return to a couple of my favorites, uh, including the Jonathan Larson Project and Rachel Bloom and the crazy ex-girlfriend writing staff. If you haven't heard them, uh, please do check them out. So... The spring theater season is starting now, lots of new shows coming, and uh, one of my favorites so far is the subject of this week's episode. Um, I am, of course, a self-proclaimed theater nerd, but something I'm constantly learning about is how long the process can be to take a show from off-Broadway in its many incarnations, in New York and otherwise, to Broadway. One of the most astonishingly wonderful shows I've seen recently made me think about this all over again. Two years ago, I saw a new musical called Hades Town at New York Theater Workshop, which is a major off-Broadway theater here uh, known for incubating really innovative productions. It is, in fact, where Rent started out in the 90s. The show was, on a very basic level, a retelling of the Greek myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, but that was really only the start of what it had going on. It's based on a concept album also called Hades Town by singer-songwriter Anais Mitchell, which actually reached the top 10 of Billboard's Americana and Folk Albums chart. And the record featured guest vocals from the likes of Boney Vare's Justin Vernon and Ani DeFranco. Mitchell's musical style is hard to describe eloquently, but it blends elements of folk and jazz and at times has a kind of New Orleans-y vibe uh, on this particular album. And in its original staging, the show had this very intimate feel. It was performed almost in the round, and you felt quite appropriately as if a kind of fable was being told to you directly. Though the story was classic, it felt modern in subtle ways. Orpheus, the musician with God's given talent, uh, was kind of this struggling artist with a indie heartthrob vibe. Uh, Eurydice, uh, the girl who understandably falls for him. And Hades, the king of the underworld, had this sort of sly, cynical, corporate boss feel. The essential elements of that original production are definitely evident two years later in the new Broadway version of Hades Town, but the show has also changed. There is some new casting, notably Reeve Carney, who starred in Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark on Broadway, and also was the subject of Taylor Swift's I Knew You Were Trouble video, fun fact, uh, plays Orpheus. And Eva Noblezada, who came on the podcast when she was starring in Miss Saigon, is Eurydice. The staging has expanded in a really beautiful way that you kind of have to see to understand. Um, and while there were always kind of underlying political elements to the show, they were never heavy handed at all. But they are definitely brought into relief in the moment we're living in in 2019 in a way that maybe did not come across as strongly in the original production. It's pretty powerful. Every year lately on Broadway, there has been at least one new show that feels like it's totally kind of refreshing the musical theater form. Last year, for me, it was The Band's Visit, and this year, to me, that show is Hades Town. And of course, there is already a lot of Tony buzz around it. A huge part of the show's incredibly original vision comes from its director, Rachel Chavkin. Uh, Rachel was nominated for a Tony for her work on the very inventive Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 recently. 
Uh, and she came to the podcast this week to talk about the show along with composer Mitchell and two of the show's stars who've been with Hades Town since its inception, Patrick Page, who plays Hades, and Amber Gray, who plays Persephone. Fine. Takes a lot of medicine to make it through the winter time. Way down, Hades Town, way down on the ground. <laughs> cool. I'm Aeneas, uh, and I'm the writer of the show. I'm Rachel Chavkin. I'm the director of the show. I'm Patrick Page. I play Hades. I'm Amber Gray. I play Persephone. Great. Nice to see you, wonderful people. <laughs> so uh, I saw Hades Town two years ago at New York Theatre Workshop and loved it then, but was uh, sort of taken aback by how different it felt even two years later. Uh, seeing it last week, the show is incredible. I really enjoyed getting my fake flower at the end. Oh, good. <laughs> um, just overall a really transformative experience. So, Anais, why don't we start with you? You wrote this 10 years ago, really, almost, and uh, so much has changed since then. When you first started out, did you think, oh, a folk opera about Orpheus and Eurydice makes sense in the modern world? Or how did this all come about in the first place for you? I had no idea, you know, where the thing was heading. It really has been from the very beginning, like uh, just putting one foot in front of the next. And um, yeah, I started working on it about 12 years ago. I was living in Vermont and um, the piece was at first it was like a community theater project, like this DIY thing. And then um, a few years later made an album Um with some guest singers on it that had, that was like an, another draft of the thing with uh, uh, a lot of the songs that are still in the show now and then started working with Rachel six years ago. And so it's been just sort of, um, I, I can't believe it's still going, <laughs> um, but here we are. What was sort of the initial seed of the idea for you? Because it's, I mean, it's not necessarily a natural thought that this like very, very old story would end up feeling like it has so much modern relevance. Mm -hmm. The very first thing that happened, which is oftentimes what happens if, if I'm writing songs, is that like some lyrics came out of nowhere and they seem to be about this thing. I was driving in my car um, and I was driving from like one gig to another in the south uh, and I these lyrics came into my head that went, wait for me, I'm coming in my garters and pearls, with what melody did you barter me from the wicked underworld? And those lyrics are not in the show anymore, but um, but the melody of that thing is still in the show. And mm -hmm. it was really like a sort of a mysterious, you know, thing that a thread that I followed. Um, I I love old stories, like I love folk music, and a lot of a lot of folk music is about. Um, you know, traditional stories and songs that get retold again and again, and they and they and they resonate in different ways in different times. And I think you know, working on a myth like this is sort of an extension of that. Um, and it's beautiful because I think old stories and and old songs like they tell us that we're not alone in our place and time. You know, that any any experience we're having has been had before, and um, they make us feel connected to other people and other other times. Mm -hmm. So, Rachel, I mean, we've recently seen how good you are at taking a very old text and bringing it into 
a context that feels sort of new and completely refreshed with the comet. Um, but so I don't want to put this in the exact same category as that. But when you, how did you discover the project, and how did you have a sense that it might work um, as a theater piece? Yeah, sure. Uh, such different writers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, in this case, a very dear friend, uh, a drummer, introduced Anais and I, and uh, it turned out she had come to see Comet actually in its original run at Ars Nova, and I think was like seeking director, <laughs> and um, and partner and. And, uh, and so my first encounter with it was the studio album that had been made that had sort of evolved out of all this work on this DIY community theater event so long ago. And so I had the album, at, which is like a stunningly beautiful um, cycle of music. And I was moved by the melodies and I was moved by the character um, uh, like glimpses that were all through the album. And so that was where Anais and I began talking. So the initial, it sounds like the initial attraction was the music itself, the characters, not necessarily seeing some huge global thing beyond that yet. No, I mean, I think the thing that's kind of remarkable about uh, the show is that there's nothing actually, Anais and I have never had a conversation that's like, how do we make this timely? Like, Mm -hmm. that's just never been... Um, the piece is not overtly political in in any way. And so it's sort of shocking that it does have at its center, you know, this incredibly remarkable song, Why We Build the Wall. But that was not, I, I think you can uh, feel the poetry around it. You know, that was not an intentional thing of going, how do we talk about now? It is this sort of remarkable thing, which Anais was talking about, of these myths that tap into something so ancient and and, and the idea of a leader that tries to maintain power by keeping people afraid of one another mm-hmm. um, and afraid of their fellow human, um, that is, that's very old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I think the first image that I ever had which was to the song Wait For Me, which is uh, one of the most beautiful songs on the album. And it was this image of these swinging lamps. So mm-hmm. that was that was where we really began talking about production. Which is a very cool image on stage now. Um, You got such sort of singular vocalists involved in the album itself and uh, you know, hearing even just the the melody that Orpheus sings throughout the show, I totally see how Justin Vernon's voice was very well equipped for that. Um, And, you know, having such character voices first attached to the project, how did that affect how you went about casting these wonderful people sitting here, the two of you, I guess. Yeah, people uh, on that album, all the vocalists brought so much of their personality and who they are as artists, you know, who they they are as songwriters, Justin Vernon and Ani DeFranco and stuff. And I think we sought out the same kind of people in the actors that we're working with now. Like everyone is, uh, we use the word unicorn a lot (laughs) because there's there's just the singularity, you know, in all of these characters. Um, uh, Our music director, um, Liam Robinson, put it like, at one point in a, I think he was addressing our cast in London and said something like, each of you on stage is a musician, you know, in addition to being an actor. And and people are really um, making their own choices with the music, um, making it their own. And that's been just like really thrilling 
uh, to see how that elevates the songs when, when someone can really wear it in their own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk a lot about um, the cast as performers, first and foremost, mm-hmm. even more than actors, per se. And I think there's something about a performer that is both acutely aware of the story that they are telling and living in that story and also is like a craftsperson <laughs> of mm-hmm. the utmost where they know, and I think like Amber and Patrick are two extra, you know, like extraordinary examples of that, this in terms of like understanding the pleasure of a music event and being able to walk that while also deeply serving the emotional core of the story, which is, uh, you know, this old couple finding um, uh, essentially rejuvenation, a resurrection through the fate of this young couple. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask the two of you about how you kind of started conceiving your characters, because I think that, you know, for some reason, there seems to be an appeal to creative people about Greek mythology. Like a lot of my <laughs> friends who are also creative, we we're all like obsessed with Greek myths growing up. Um, but there is something about the characters in Greek myths that they're off, they often come across as archetypes or as sort of very one note. And there are so many layers to the way you play these, these characters. So how did you think of them before entering into this project? And how did you kind of start to craft a, a little bit of a different concept of them? I mean, I grew up as a Latin nerd and, like, knew the Greek and Roman versions of these myths very well. I have to say, when I first started thinking about playing Persephone, that is quite overwhelming <laughs> because, yeah, they have they are archetypes, these, these characters. But in this version, that's not necessarily true, right? And I just stay with what's on the page, I think. That has helped me. It's not helpful to think of the real myths because they don't necessarily come into play in our mm-hmm. version. So I just have let that go. (laughs) Um, But I do remember coming into audition for the first time, like my brain knew that I needed a pair of army boots to be able to stomp during Our Lady. And I still stomp even though I'm not in like a flat-soled boot. Um, I was like, I need a dress and I need boots. And I always saw myself with a fan. Like for whatever reason, those things were crystal clear. And it is funny to craft something over time, like why I had that gut reaction, I am not exactly sure. And it it also tickles me to go back and listen to the live New York Theatre Workshop recording because some choices I'm making now are so much more exaggerated than they even were back then. (laughs) But just in the the celebration of making sounds with my mouth and sharing this music with people, um, that has informed a lot of how I play the character as well. They feed each other. And you like, and you have like no joints in your arms. I was like, <laughs> I am double jointed. I was so. like, I was like, how does she swing your arm the way you do while also singing? It's it's like crazy. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I uh, well, I was attracted by the idea of um, playing Hades, king of the underworld, right? Powerful character. I was attracted initially by how they were describing the character, and then once I listened to the album, I was just completely hooked in by uh, what Aeneas had written. Um, Like every actor, I completely skipped over any part that had nothing to do with me and just went for the parts of the album (laughs) that were Hades songs. And so what I listened to first were Hey Little Songbird and Why We Build the Wall, Mm -hmm. and then His Kiss the Riot. And I was just overwhelmed because there, as far as I know, 
there had never been a sound like that in the commercial theater. <laughs> um, and it happened to be a sound I could make. Um, and so I was, I just called up immediately and said, could you, could you arrange for me to meet these people? And I had seen um, Great Comet. And one of my little rules of thumb is, you know, um, don't people always ask you what, uh, what what are your bucket list roles? I say I don't have bucket list roles. I have bucket list people I want to work with. <laughs> so I'd seen Rachel's work. And I was like, oh, I need to work with her. Mm-hmm. So those two things coincided, and then it just turned out to be we had a lovely meeting where I got to sing Songbird with Anais. <laughs> Um, in a tiny studio. <laughs> and, and, you know, which was very intimidating, but also really fun. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can do it up an octave if you want. So they had me do it up an octave, which is still pretty low. Yeah. Um, and they're like, no, no, sing it down. For the, <laughs> okay, good. Because I, yeah. I don't get to do that. You know, you don't get to do that that often. So that was... And I agree with Amber in the sense that I, I I started to research Hades more than I had in the past. I knew, you know, we had children's books essentially of Greek myths at home and mm-hmm. read them and loved them. But um, two things. One, there's very little information about Hades because the Greeks were afraid to say the name. Mm-hmm. It was like Voldemort. So, <laughs> and, they, and, and they didn't write more stories about him. There are a bunch of, you know... Um, different uh, roads you can do where Hades appears in other things a lot because they just didn't want to deal with him. Don't call his name. He'll come. So um, there was that. And I went and I went into the idea of the brothers, but they're not in the show. You know, mm-hmm. his, his other two brothers are not in the show. What's in the show and what's powerful and what I hooked into was the relationship with Persephone so that everything in the play for me has to do with my relationship with her. That you, I suppose one could go down the wrong road and say the fundamental characteristic of Hades is that he is a, a, a businessman or the fundamental characteristic is that he's a cult leader or an autocrat or a CEO or a capitalist. But I think that would be the wrong road. Fundamentally, he's a husband. He's mm-hmm. all those mm-hmm. other things because he's got a problem in his marriage mm-hmm. that he's trying to mm-hmm. fix. Yeah, completely. I, I was going to say when you say you've never kind of sung a role like this before, have you ever sung notes this low before? Is this like pushing you beyond what you thought your, your, know. your low people, point was? People ask me what the, all the time at the stage door what the lowest note is in the show, and I, I need to go to the piano and ask Liam what it is because I don't know. Um, Liam will definitely know. Yeah, he's but um, no, I don't. I, I, I don't. I don't think I have. Alan Menken wrote some pretty low ones in Hunchback for me, but I, <laughs> not, not this low. It's kind of incredible. So I'm curious about. I mean, Rachel, your approach to to working on a show is fairly unique. I know with how you develop and work with, uh, you know, the the music as well. What is the sort of collaboration between you and Anais like? <laughs> <laughs> like who is writing yeah. what? I mean, to what degree are both of you involved in writing what the character is for each yeah, of the two yeah. of them? I mean, Aeneas wrote every word in this piece, definitely. And, like, I had a, uh, I don't know if uh, she said this to you, but a, a dear friend of both of ours who um, has given us, like, really important feedback at, at certain points over the course of the, the development, she said after she saw it on Broadway this past week, she said, um, Aeneas's rhymes are so good they're often invisible. And I just thought that was, like, such a beautiful articulation. Um, So where, like, where I have 
like been in the writing process is really um, uh, sometime, <laughs> sometime coach slash uh, demon, um, <laughs> uh, and and often talking about story architecture. Like that's really because I, uh, of course, I come from a dramatic background uh, in terms of theater work. And so points of story development and just like instincts in particular about character um, and what makes a character moving, um, because at the end of the day, I'm most just guided by what I find moving or what I think feels um, emotional. Like mm -hmm. to describe something as emotional is actually like the highest um, uh, praise I can give a moment. And so talking about that and talking about causality. I remember like one of the first conversations, I think the very first working conversation we had was going through the album and our first little fight <laughs> or, you know, like t moment of tension, and we've had lots of them, was about the the songs Chips and Gone, I'm Gone, because on the album, it goes Gone, I'm Gone, and then Chips, and I was like, well, you can't do that. <laughs> that is inherently undramatic, because in Gone, I'm Gone, she, Eurydice says the words, I'm gone, meaning she has made the choice to go to Hades Town, And then Chips, you have this wonderful song by these three wildly dynamic women that are pressuring her, encouraging her to make a decision. And so if you have had her make that choice before they sing, then you've got no reason to have that song. And so, yeah, that was like the first sort of example of just me responding to what Aeneas is writing. Mm -hmm. Totally. And I, you know, I don't come from the theater world and I'm not sort of studied in dramatic writing. I, I mostly have just written songs before working on this project. Um, and so it's been a like, I feel like a master class working with Rachel for so many years on this thing and trying to figure out how to do what I do as a songwriter, but also um, allow there to be moment to moment storytelling um, and uh, right, have there be result, you know, cause cause and effect and events and um there it really has been you know when we did our first workshop with um new york theater workshop we, we went to dartmouth um uh college where they do a residency in the summertime and we were working with a bunch of actors up there and this is my, my first like real workshop with rachel and um I had we had talked about missing pieces in the story, and I'd written a bunch of other songs. And I thought, like, oh great, I'll just write some more songs, and that will be enough, you know. And we um, we we had a great time up there. We, we had a lot of music jams. Amber was there. <laughs> um, we finally put the thing on, and people were like, "Great songs, but we have no idea what's happening in this story," you know. <laughs> and so then it was like back to square one. How do we how do we go further? And um, the next step that we took was to sort of developed the Hermes character, um, now played by Andre de Shields, um, as a narrator, uh, which is which is mythic for him because he is a guide, you know, that's who Hermes is. Um, so to allow him to guide the audience through the story um, by actually telling us what's happening sometimes when we need that to happen. And so that was the next step. And then there's a certain moment where I was like, Rachel, like, could this character actually say something to this other character and then <laughs> they would respond, you know, but it would rhyme. And Rachel was like, 
Yeah. That's really good. That's what That's should happen. I've been waiting for you to ask that so, and it was a slow, I mean, it's been a very slow and organic sort of stretching process of the piece growing towards that kind of, you know, what is it, what is dramatically satisfying. Um, mm-hmm. But I also will say about Rachel and about this piece in particular because it's, um, it lives in this very delicate space. It's not set in a particular time and place. It's mythic. It's metaphorical a lot of times. Um, there's not, you know, in the script even that we're using now, there's not a lot of stage directions. It's not like Hades crosses down stage left and pours himself a gin. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's very, um, it's so elemental and spare that figuring out how to interpret that visually, I think, has been um, such like a journey for Rachel and and other members of the, of and the, the design team. team. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Honoring the first thing Anais ever said to me, and it's like the thing that has become a mantra around the production, is that this is a poetry piece, not a prose piece. Mm. And originally, like, that meant that it rhymed, which it, it does beautifully. But it also has meant... Um, so many things in terms of the essentialism of it so that uh, as we've gone through that it's like there's one right decision <laughs> and it take it has taken years sometimes to find out what that like overriding sort of theory of everything is because it sort of needs to be that sparse and that's something that Aeneas is like so... Um, wildly keyed into is even just like, oh, it doesn't feel quite like those pants. It feels sort of like these (laughs) other pants. And so there's just been this kind of endless series of degrees, of moving in degrees, but I think that's why we're sort of arriving and it all feels, hopefully, of a very careful, delicate piece. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think that it's so true that in, in this show, more so than most I've seen those tiny details are really useful to the audience in putting together like what am I seeing because mm-hmm. it's so different from what we're used to and I mean the music itself is a big part of that I, I when I'm describing the show to people and telling them how amazing it is I often find myself feeling a little imprecise describing what the music sounds like because I'm like it's a little rootsy but like a little New Orleansy sounding and a little jazzy and it's not really only one of any of those things how do you all talk about it when you talk about it just like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, I think we all struggle with that because it's a sound that uh, hasn't been heard on Broadway before. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of different influences in the music. It's just a great, great score. You know, I tell everybody my dirty little secret is that even though I've worked on the show for three years and have to listen to the music every night, <laughs> sometimes when I go to the gym, I'll still put on the album and listen to a couple <laughs> songs. <laughs> Yeah, I have the concept album on vinyl and listen to it on a record player in my dressing room while I'm getting ready. I can actually listen to it now as well because our songs are different enough that it doesn't mess me up anymore to listen to these old melodies or versions of the things. Because there, there were a couple of years there I, I couldn't listen to Ani DeFranco sing How Long because then I wouldn't be able to hear my note when we did it together. <laughs> but um, that's totally what first made me fall in love with the show was just listening to the album. I was riding my bike home over the Brooklyn Bridge. It was misty out. Everything about it like felt really magical. And as soon as I got home, I listened to it again in cans while reading the lyrics online simultaneously. And then I fell in love with the story. But it was the just the sound of the album that first like 
I, that I first had a visceral reaction to. Mm-hmm. We have these two um, orchestrators, a range of orchestrators that have been working on the piece for as almost as long as I've been working on songs for it. Um, one is Michael Chorney and the other is Todd Sikafus. And um, they both come from the jazz world. I'd say the experimental jazz world. And um, the sound of the band and the orchestrations is a huge part of the aesthetic of the whole piece. Um, there's a trombone, obviously. It's a, it's a major, major trombone featured. moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's funny because the, the, the show begins with a, with a trombone part that at a certain moment we tried to make into a guitar part for a dramaturgical reason that ended up not being <laughs> <laughs> that powerful. But everyone was like, oh, no, no, it, ha- it has to be the trombone because it feels spiritually like mm-hmm. the herald of what's to come. And then um, these beautiful counter lines on two-string um, to a cello and a violin, and um, and just the way the rhythm section is organized, and the and the guitar driven nature of a lot of the songs mm-hmm. um, feels like really like it comes from a different world, and and I think we are unique in the sense that the orchestrations have been baked into the piece from as long ago as we can remember. You know, I think a lot of shows get pretty far down the road yeah. of development before they're like, let's get an arranger in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it makes it feel different. Certain choices have been made for musical logic um, from an early stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's like, I mean, at the end of the day, I just say the music is good. It's wildly yeah, exquisite. And that's Aeneas, and that's Todd, and that's Michael, and that's the uniqueness of the singers, the vocalists who we have, totally. But it's like, I think it's particularly unique in part because you're writing the songs on guitar, whereas most musical theater is piano-based. And so there's like all, yeah, there's just so many things that set the, put the score in a very unusual category. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's pretty incredible to feel like every single person singing, you're kind of hearing a person first. And I mean, I think of of Eva, who's not here because, um, you know, she was amazing in Miss Saigon. But I, I felt like watching her, I was like, oh, I'm getting to see her be her, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in a way She's that she wasn't before. As well. Yeah. I think there's something I you and I, Amber, I'm pointing at Amber, uh, have talked <laughs> a lot about this, about so maybe you should say more about this because mm-hmm. it's really you is what it is for female vocalists to sing songs written by a woman. By other women. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they just write in the pocket of our ranges, you know, whereas oftentimes when I have worked on material written by a man, it's either like in the rafters for a woman in a place that is very difficult to sing at for too long or I don't want to necessarily even hear that sound <laughs> for too long. That's not always true, but it's where your voice naturally lies is like where my voice naturally lies. And it makes it easier to play with the sounds because it is in the pocket of my voice. Then I can do some extreme stuff on the edges of that. But going back to the orchestrations, having been there from the beginning, that as well has informed so much of how I started moving as Persephone because it's like I key into a violent part or I key, and I want to bring that out in my movement, you know. And if those hadn't been there from the beginning, I don't know, I don't know what kind of character body I would have ended up with. <laughs> um, it has the music and being able to hear it on stage is so vital to the joy of performing it and just the shapes I'm making and I, I want to make. Like the thrusting move in Our Lady actually came from an improv day in London when Todd Sikafus decided to play in the room, just brought his bass and was jamming with Liam. 
and it was a sound I had never quite heard before, and I just started doing that for some reason. <laughs> now it's in the show forever. Muppet. <laughs> Muppet time. Just to say that the flip side of the coin of like a, the female composer is that mm. I have no idea what to do for right. men. Right. And that's why I didn't want to say two that. Parts are. So that's, that, that like Patrick's part, I can sing totally comfortably in my, you know, no other man on earth could sing it besides you, but, <laughs> but um, you know, I could sing it comfortably several octaves up from where mm-hmm. you do it. And I saw somebody tweeting something about a, 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 a young actor tweeting about how refreshing it was that the show was written in a way that, exactly what you're saying about female voices, but that the male voices were required to do ridiculous things. Yes. Yeah. Reeves' voice. And, and and which of course he can do all night <laughs> yes, long, totally. you know. And, mm. but, but normally, you know, you go to these shows that are influenced, you know, by American Idol and these other shows where the woman has to belt at the very top of a range all week long, eight shows a week, you know. Yeah. Mm. I hadn't even thought of that, but you and Reeve are just at the complete yeah. opposite totally. ends of the spectrum. Oh, it's a very poetic thing that Orpheus lives so high and delicate. And mm-hmm. Hades is this incredible mm. base. Subterranean. Yeah. Yes. And I found myself concerned for both of you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how are their voices surviving and we're, and we're this every night? Okay. Yes. We're both okay. Yes. You sound fine. just fine. <laughs> um I, I was going to say, Amber, before that it's funny. I mean, I, I know you primarily from this show and from Comet, and I, I always enjoy going on little YouTube spirals after I see shows <laughs> I like. And, and I saw that you were involved in Oklahoma back in its very early days and saw some clip of you singing. Oh, in a rehearsal hall. Yes, in a rehearsal yeah. hall. And I was like, it's so strange to hear her singing Rogers and Everstein. It's like, this is the way I think of your voice being now. Yeah. <laughs> You mean in, in inside of those two shows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like this is who you naturally are. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, and a lot of those keys were set so that people could project in Rodgers and Hammerstein, so people could project without amplification, you mm-hmm. know, which a lot of people just aren't trained to do anymore. And in that particular production of Oklahoma, we got to change keys to where we normally live. And so mm-hmm. they were put into places that were much more comfortable for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I enjoy experimenting with my voice, though, and trying to figure out how to do things. And so I can't read music, and sometimes I'm quite grateful for that because I don't get intimidated by a note on a page being too high or too low. Certainly not to say I can make all sounds, but it, there is the like challenge and joy of figuring out how to physically just make a noise, mm. which I love, which is also part of the celebration of performing music every night. Like, it is a whole body experience, mm. and it is really uh, a very joyous one, I find. <laughs> well, kind of to that point, I mean, I think I feel like for a lot of people, even if you are a really diehard theater fan, it's a bit of a mystery how you do an off-Broadway to Broadway transfer, especially since this show has gone through a couple iterations from 2016 till now. Um, and, and and when a show like this, you know, I, I, I first saw it in a very intimate atmosphere in a small theater that felt kind of in the round. And um, you've done a great job of, of keeping that feel, but also really amplifying a lot of things, I think. So I'm just curious from from both a creative production standpoint and from an acting standpoint, how do you sort of navigate that transition? Yeah, I mean... Uh, I just like can't say enough about Rachel Houck, our scenic designer, um, mm-hmm. who has been with us through the entire journey and has been like an unbelievable partner. Um, I think to me and Aeneas, but certain like I've spent you know hundreds of hours in Rachel's studio. And when we first 
we're making the move from New York Theatre Workshop to Edmonton, Canada, where all Broadway shows go um, <laughs> uh, in the winter. Um, we, we actually, for a moment, really lost it. And we created this, we were, it was our first time moving into proscenium and we knew we wanted um, to make a leap into uh, proscenium where we like left the audience on one side and, and did pretty much all the acting on the other. Um, and we created this beautiful um, visual world uh, because that was now the, the invitation uh, versus at New York Theatre Workshop where there was no space really to create a visual world. I mean, the visual world was the vibe of a concert event and creating, you know, this Greek amphitheater. And uh, so for Edmonton, um, Rachel and I worked towards this beautiful but very cold um, sort of uh, st staging of a railroad line on the road to hell. And we got into tech, and it had been very pretty, and we just looked at it, and it just felt dead. It just felt wrong. And it suddenly was like, oh, my God, we've literalized a metaphor a number one, don't do that. And B number two, we lost the vibe. We lost the thing that actually suddenly we all were like, oh, that was what we did right at New York Theater Workshop. And actually, in terms of institutional knowledge for a production that's long in development, Amber and Patrick were really valuable in refinding the vibe when we were in Edmonton because so we had this revelation, and then I made the decision with Rachel's support, we're going to cut three quarters of the act one set between previews one and previews two. <laughs> and uh, Amber and Patrick, I think you might go back to being on stage the whole time because they'd suddenly had all these entrances mm. and exits because we had this workers' chorus, which we hadn't had at New York Theatre Workshop. So at New York Theatre Workshop, everyone had to sing backup for everyone else constantly, oh, yeah. whereas <laughs> we didn't have to do that in Edmonton. So they were like, you know, hanging off stage. <laughs> and I was like, I think you guys will be on stage, so maybe we'll set up a table. And I remember both of you immediately saying, oh, this feels so much mm -hmm. better. I missed this. And it was like, right, that nostalgia is not – because sometimes those those things can be misleading. But this was like a mm -hmm. core identification of something we had done right, not even knowing that it was right. <laughs> we just hadn't been able to afford an ensemble at New York Theatre Workshop. But actually ha was key to the – communal event that actually is the piece. Um, so uh, so that was a really important part of the step. And then after Edmonton, Rachel Hauk and I basically spent months looking at images of Preservation Hall uh, and, uh, you know, images of the French Quarter and just mm -hmm. great music venues and going, okay, that's that's what we have to do. We have to create a space with a vibe that feels like it felt at New York Theatre Workshop, but then also can do these other transformational things that we've found in Edmonton, including the turntable, that are worth holding on to. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear you say vibe so repeatedly because, I mean, it seems like atmosphere is maybe the hardest thing to create in a way that feels organic in the theater and not like we're, we drew this out on a piece of paper and yeah. this is exactly what you're getting. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, for the two of you to to do this on this bigger stage, and I mean, you were kind of saying before, Amber, that vocally and physically it's sort of even more of a thing, but how have you kind of made this transition? Um, Amber's voice just dropped two octaves. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, She motioned over to me. Um, uh, For me... uh, as it's opened up, um, I don't know that the acting changes that much, if at all, really. And I think people maybe have a misunderstanding about acting in that they think uh, scale has more to do with it than it does, mm-hmm. that you get bigger in a bigger space or smaller mm-hmm. in a smaller space. Mm-hmm. I haven't found that to be necessarily true in my own work. Um, but. The way you share something certainly does. I mean, there are there were there are moments that happen between Amber and me, for example, in this show, um, where when I used to do them at New York Theater Workshop, I would be sad if you know my family was sitting behind my back because they couldn't see my face at that moment. Now mm-hmm. everybody can see my face at the same time. Mm-hmm. Everybody can see her face at the same time, um, and. Uh, but the way a, a room embraces you, or rather the way your personal energy moves outward to fill a space is a really interesting thing that I don't know how to talk about because it's mm-hmm. kind of a mystery. Mm-hmm. But, for example, we were in the Olivier Theater in London, which is one of the great houses in the world, but it's a has a massive amount of airspace over it. Actually, mm-hmm. doesn't have that many more seats than the Kerr, hmm. but it has a massive amount of air over your head, and that felt really good. Hmm. Um, <laughs> it, the, in terms of like playing a god, to have this like mm-hmm. it was like you were playing an Epidaurus or something, you know. Hmm. Um, this feels great in another way. We come out in this, if you were to stand on the stage of the Kerr and there was a full house, which there is every night, <laughs> and hopefully will continue to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but there's what looks like you're walking out to is a wall of people because they're stacked on top of one another. Mm-hmm. That's a different energy that feels fabulous in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow it does something internally, but I don't know how to describe what mm-hmm. it does. But I don't think you feel like, oh, I got to act this moment bigger or smaller. You don't have to glower more. No, <laughs> I'll make a, I'll make a bigger face or I'll make a bigger gesture. I, I don't think that that's true. But I, I do. There is something more mysterious about the nature of energy mm-hmm. that happens in different houses. I have to say, just because this is making me think of this, that like I think it, I think in a way it kind of. The, this Broadway production is making the audience have to engage more in a way. I like. I feel. I always felt like someone on stage was kind of looking at me, and not, not in a creepy way, but sort of. You couldn't just sit back. Like I, I always think the best shows make you have to kind of sit forward mm-hmm. in your seat. And well, the way Rachel's directed it is that from the very the very first moment is a moment of contact between the cast mm-hmm, and the audience. Mm-hmm, true, so it's true. us coming out, and because most of the time when you go and see a play, the first thing that happens is. We, the actors, are going to pretend that you're not here. And the very first thing that happens in this is we come out and we wave at the audience. We say, <laughs> we're here, you're here, and we're all both going to be, we're, we're going to be here the whole time. So none of us are ever going to go away. The cast essentially is always going to be on stage, 
and you're always going to be sitting there and we're going to be going through this thing together and we're giving you a warning right off the bat. It's not going to end well, <laughs> you know, but maybe we'll all get through it together. <laughs> it's like, so the show is locked. I can't change any lyrics, but I <laughs> just was thinking like maybe an actor could ad lib something about this, but I always keep wanting some, someone to acknowledge the balcony people because they're so far up there, you know, and it's the cheap seats and it's like they're up at the top, you know, the top of the yeah. ceiling there. And there's something about that living it up on top song. Like I wondered if there could be like some moment you know, <laughs> don't tell Andre because he will. Or do tell Andre. Andre's the one to slip the hint too. Yeah. I always look at those people. I always give them loving because we're too. quite high up when we come out. I'm all forever waving. Uh, I, I'm very. Uh, you know, we've set the the wall in Hades Town is is not a vertical wall. It's a uh, it's a wall that obviously is over the top of us because we are the underworld. So yeah. Hades is very frequently referring up there and I use mm. it as an opportunity to make contact mm. with those people as frequently as I can because you know that you you have to really want to come to the theater. If you buy a, a and I did this many 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 times when I was first in New York and I had no money to come I said I'm going to go see that show and I sat in the in the cheapest seat in the house mm-hmm. and th- those and you know what? In the Kerr, they're still pretty good seats. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. yeah, I've had a lot of friends who've watched up there and said it's yeah. great. And yeah. they love watching the patterns yeah. on the stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah I can imagine that perspective being cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess just to close things up, I uh, i mean, I was thinking about so many things when the show was over. And, and obviously, as you've said, Rachel, the um, Why We Build the Wall song feels like very relevant right now in very eerie ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't know. I, I found myself coming away from it with kind of a different overall take. And I'm curious when people ask you all, what is the show about? Do you say it's the story of Orpheus and Eurydice or mm. what do you say? I can also mm. tell you my take and you can give it's me your feedback. It's about this guy named Hades. He <laughs> 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 entirely too little time on stage. <laughs> huh. We often talk about the show as a as a an intertwining of two love stories, you mm-hmm. know, that the, mm-hmm. these two ancient mythic love stories, Orpheus and Eurydice and Hades and Persephone and how those things intertwine. And I think it's useful to talk about it that way because it does foreground the fact that it's a it's a love story mm-hmm. first and foremost. And it and certainly it does um, have a political streak in it and, and it resonates in these other ways. But that's kind of at the heart of what the thing is. Mm-hmm. Um the other thing that I think about, like, thematically, is um, that all the characters in Town have a different approach to living in hard times, you know? Mm. And um, some of them uh, are more fearful or more practical-minded about it, and some of them have more faith in the abundance of the world. Um, uh, and it's not that anyone is more right than the other, really. It's about um, kind of how do we want to live in this world? And there's that song, um, right, when the chips are down, that the mm-hmm. fates sing, which is, sums up something for me. When things are hard, when the chips are down, you know, what are you going to do? And I think that's the, mm-hmm. a, a live question mm-hmm. in the show. Yeah. Yeah, I think the other, like for me, the 
most astonishing thing about, right, we, we started by talking about how these myths exist in sort of like shared cosmic space and they come back and they come back and kind of get retold for our time uh, and different things come forward. And I think that the, the thing that blows me away that Aeneas did in this adaptation is that she took the ancient story of like a lover who just wants to know if his other if his lover is behind him but, mm. uh, and and ultimately crumbles out of fear of not being able to feel his partner um, and that that gets linked um, to larger questions of of solidarity of like whether you feel that you and this goes to what Anais was just talking about but like do you live in a world of of doubt and fear versus a world of trust and 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 that Orpheus ultimately doesn't trust whether it's Eurydice or Hades or himself and he turns around uh, spoiler, I guess, but <laughs> yes. um, but it's an old story. Um, but you keep hoping it's not going to happen, even though you totally. Know <laughs> I, I hope so. Um, Hermes does certainly. Yeah. Um, and that that gets linked to someone walking into the darkness and like having the courage to to mm. n- not even so much speak truth to power, but just ask a question of power, mm-hmm. um, and the question of whether their fellow humans are beside them when they take that like vulnerable step. And I think that that is a remarkable um, parallel to tease forward. So that's what I would say the show is about for me. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I was going to say that. I, I mean, I, I ultimately walked away feeling a, a bit of a combination of what the two of you were saying that, uh, you know, the world's will never be completely perfect. The song will never be completely complete, but um, the, I, I took it as kind of a statement about like the worth of art in the world, mm-hmm. and um, that 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 even in the darkness, there there is an artist who wants to see some beauty in the world, and um, and that makes the story worth telling over and over again, mm-hmm. um, which is a very encouraging thought. That's good too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thank you all for coming, and I'm I'm excited to go back to see the show because yeah. I have to see it a second time now, a <laughs> or I guess a third time. Yeah, awesome. thank you for having us. Cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Hey, little songbird, give me a song. I'm a busy man and I can't stay long. I got clients to call. I got orders to fill. I got walls to build. I got riots to quell. Hades Town is now playing at the Walter Kerr Theater in New York. If you're a fan of Billboard on Broadway, please subscribe on iTunes and give us lots of nice reviews and stars if you feel so moved. You can always also find us on other platforms, including Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. On social media, I'm at YaDownWithRMM on Instagram. I am at Rebecca Millsoff on Twitter, and you can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway to talk about the podcast. See you back next week.